I've been reading Numbers 25, 1 through 9. That's Numbers 25, 1 through 9. When Israel lived in Shatim, the, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the, the Baal of Meor, Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation, to the people of Israel. While they were weep, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the, the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. And the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. I may God add their blessing to the reading of his word. Let's take your Bible. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 25, if you will. Keep your Bibles open as we'll walk through Numbers 25 and briefly look at Numbers 26 and get to at least one uh, text in Numbers 26. So, This morning, if you're joining us for the first time, we are in uh, a study of the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers has been a story about a people of God traveling from slavery and bondage in Egypt to a land of promise, a land that was promised to the descendants of Abraham, a land of plenty, a land flowing with milk and honey, a fertile land. And this story of Numbers is the story of this people in the between time, between when God has redeemed them, brought them out of bondage, but before they're yet in the promised land. God has purchased redemption. He has set them free from slavery, and he's bringing them to the land of promise. And so you and I identify with these people because God has purchased our redemption He has set us free from the penalty and power of sin, and He will one day set us free from the presence of sin. We are on our way to eternal life, to a a land that will be forever, a king that is good and will last forever and ever. The Bible teaches us that king is Jesus, and He bought our salvation. He bought our adoption into the royal family in his kingdom. 
in this story in Numbers as we identify with the folks. Last week we saw Balak, the king of Moab, the people of Israel are getting ready to move up into the land. They are in their last camping spot. You see it there in chapter 22. We're reminded in chapter 25 verse 1, they're camping out in the plains of Moab. They're on the edge of the promised land. And this will be the last place that we see them Joshua, as a matter of fact, in Joshua chapter 2 will send spies from this camping spot up into the land of promise. They will leave out of here and begin the story of the book of Joshua, the conquest of this kingdom. So they're there in the plains of Moab and we saw them moving in here. And the king of Moab named Balak had seen them and he knew that they were going to come against him. And so Balak hired pagan sorcerer to come and to curse the people of Israel, and we saw in chapters 22 through 24 how God worked providentially on the people's behalf. They were not even aware what God was doing, and yet God was working in a pagan king, in a pagan nation, with a pagan sorcerer hired to curse them, and God was working even there among the nations to bless His people. He was keeping His promises even among the enemies of God. And the people of Israel not even aware of it. So I want to remind you even this morning that outside of your awareness, God is at work. He is at work in our world on behalf of His people. And so we can trust that that's what's going on. We need to be aware though of what's going on in our hearts, in our church, in our Lives, And so we pick up in chapter 25 and are reminded that even though God is providentially working in many ways that we can't see, you and I pick the story up in ways that the people of Israel could see and you and I can identify and say, how do we work in our own lives? What do we need to do here? I mentioned to you a moment ago this pattern salvation and rescue of God and immediately they return and rebel and worship other gods and so you were listening to the text just a moment ago and you see that that's exactly what happens here in verse 1 the men of Israel begin to indulge in sexual sexual immorality with the Moabite women and subsequently they follow after the Moabite gods these pagan gods just as as an aside here We're going to get into this text, but you need to hear from last week's sermon. Chapter 31 is going to indicate to us that this whole scheme by the Moabites and the Midianites to overtake the Israelites here, to to defeat them before they even come on this conquest, is a scheme of the pagan sorcerer Balaam. So while we saw him bless and he could speak nothing else than what God put in his mouth last week, He still gives the Moabites and the Midianites a way. This might be a good way for you to overcome the Israelites and to curse them. Go in and make them worship your gods. And the way to do so is go and tempt their men sexually. You and I don't need to spend much time there in our nation to know that sexual temptation is powerful, it's effective, and it's all around us. And so if you walk away from Numbers 25 not knowing that you and I need to protect our minds and our hearts from sexual temptation, then you'll have missed a major point of this text. But I'd also say there's a greater point of this text. And that is that physical temptations, whatever they may be, really are there drawing our hearts away from being satisfied in our God. 
So whether it's sexual temptation or any other temptation, the issue is, will you give God your heart and your belief and your trust and follow Him in obedience? And here we are in a story where the Israelites yet again fail at that. So if you're sitting here this morning and you think, you know, I try to obey God and, and you're here with guilt upon your shoulders and, and you're here again confessing to God some sin, some faithlessness in your life, some place that you don't trust God, you identify with the Israelites. They are here again. It's almost as we read this story, you're thinking, not again. Here these Israelites are again. And yet if we're honest, we're before God saying, God, here I am again. Here I am again asking your forgiveness. Will you restore me? Will you help me? to be obedient to you. So let's look and see what happens in this story. I want to spend the majority of our time on these first uh, first five verses because I think that gets at the heart of the issue. Verses 1 through 3, I want you just to note how easily the men of Israel are drawn away. And then let's make some general comments about how easily we are drawn away. The men were drew drawn away by sexual immorality. Our day is really no different. Notice though in verse 2, these, that is the women of Moab, the daughters of Moab, verse 2, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. As I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking many of you are already aware of people in this community that are inviting you to worship other gods. They're false teachers that are out there and they're going to use every instance that they can to invite you away from serving the one true God after other gods. Now here we get down to Baal Peor. This is what you and I normally just say, Baal. It's one of the famous gods in the Old Testament. It's a god of fertility. It's a god that the people would worship through these sexual acts. And that's why this is here. And let me just take a moment not to be uh, so uh, uh, explicit, but to let you know that one of the major reasons that sexual acts are so important in the Old Testament and then... In the New Testament, that marriage is a picture of the gospel is because physically that is the most intimate relationship that you can have and it pictures our intimacy with God. That when we serve God, when we trust Him, we give Him our entire heart, our entire being, there is no closer relationship that we could have. And so in our world, these sex acts are picturing that in a physical way. It's the reason you read your Bible and so often we talk about those things. And so here we have those that are drawn away with this lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes being invited to worship other gods. Some of you say, I've never talked to anybody that invited me to worship Baal. Well, I dare say that there's nobody in this room that's ever been invited to anybody's home or to anybody's church to worship Baal. It doesn't mean that you're not being invited away to worship other things besides the one true God. As a matter of fact, our nation is full, saturated with other gods. Israel should have had red flags all along the way, should they not have? You look at what happens. First, verse 1 says, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. I think of the fifth commandment, for example. You shall not commit adultery. 
should have been a red flag to them. We're not serving our God any longer. We've already given our heart away. We are not obeying. We're not trusting our God enough to obey Him. But then they're invited to sacrifice to other gods. I should think that you and I and the Israelites would hear in our minds, do not make any other gods. Do not worship any other gods. The Lord your God is one. Commandment number two, make no images. They're bowing before these images of Baal, Baal, Peor, Baal. And do not take the name of the Lord in vain. They come back and they'll call themselves the children of God. Should be red flags along the way. Do you know what happens in your life as there are red flags? There, there's a consciousness, there's, a, there's a, uh, a, a realization that maybe I shouldn't do this. And yet those red flags we begin to ignore. Why? Because we are so drawn away in our own flesh. Note this church, the desires of the flesh will make promises to you and draw you away to other gods and to worship things that are not the one true God. And so note verse 3, So Israel yoked himself to Baal Peor, became one with. The image there is, even in the Hebrew, a sexual image, yoking yourself, becoming one with this God. Now note as you read on the end of verse 3, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God's response, He's angry. We've seen this before. Remember in the, in the preceding text with these same people, Balaam, his anger was kindled against his donkey. Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. Here, God's anger is kindled against those who are worshiping other gods. And in every instance, anger kindled resulted in acting. And so God, too, will act. Look at it with me in verse 4. He says to Moses, take all of the chiefs of the people and hang them, or literally impale them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from them. I'm not going to say a lot about this through this message, but I want you to note that Moses is getting tired. Maybe he is tired of the people, but I think there's a a signal here. Moses, the last one of that first generation that will pass away, that is not going to see the the promised land as a leader, he here doesn't do what God told him to do. He goes to the judges of Israel and says, you go and kill those who actually have yoked themselves, who are worshiping this God. God said, take the leaders, take the chiefs of every people and impale them. And God says, just you judges, you leaders, just go take the ones that you see in the act. So I want you to notice Moses' even lack of zeal in comparison in a moment to Phinehas, who will have zeal for the Lord. And let's pray that we're like Phinehas here. So God's anger No, I think we must say something here, church, about the idea that God wants to kill them. I want you to know that God takes sin seriously. He has never counted life too high a price to pay, whether it's your life or my life or the life of these Israelites. He's never counted life too high a price to pay for the holiness of His name. The God that you are saying that we worship here is holy and He will demand holiness. He is holy and He will never count life too high a price to pay. For his own holiness and nor 
does he do so here? Let me say a couple of things to you as we consider this part of this text. You understand, church, that we, those who have been redeemed in here, if you've not been redeemed, then I would say to you, you need to know that you're already worshiping something else. It's not a matter of whether you worship or don't worship. You do worship. You hold something. You trust in something to deliver happiness, satisfaction for you. Here are people that have been redeemed. God has brought them out of bondage and said, I am taking you to a land where you will be happy, satisfied, fulfilled forever and ever. Trust me and I'll show you how to get there. So God has already redeemed them. He's taking them to this promised land. They're in this already not yet. And even there, their faith falters, they begin to trust, well, maybe this worship, maybe this God will deliver what we want. Maybe sexual pleasure is where it really is. And so let me go after the gods of Moab. I want you to hear this morning, we, those who have been redeemed, can easily be drawn away from the one true God by the desires of our flesh. Men, I speak to you for a moment. We live in a culture where sexual immorality and the lust of the eyes is rampant. You must guard your eyes. If you have a spouse, ask her to help you guard your eyes. Women, you're not immune to being drawn away by sexual immorality. Throughout history, it has been primarily and in the majority males who have been drawn to that sin. You have things that draw you away as well. So whether it be sexual immorality, sleep, food, bad things, good things that draw you away from God, power, pleasure, Whatever it may be, these do not have to be our gods. The things that drew the men of Israel away were not gods. They were things that simply drew them to trust something other than the true God. These were a means that reveal their real gods, what they really trusted in. Do you understand, church, that every one of us has an innate desire, a drive toward whatever you want to call this, satisfaction, happiness, joy, comfort, whatever that is, that, that bliss that is innately in us that we're seeking after. Most people call it happiness. I want to call it joy. A satisfaction with life with who we are. And the Bible says that there's only one that can deliver that and He is the one who created you to live with and for that joy. And He has said, here is how you can have happiness, satisfaction, completeness in life. And it's only through living as those that you were created to live. He's the Creator and He says to you, you will never be satisfied until your hope is in me to deliver that happiness. So the world is chasing after everything else. Here we see a story of people who thought the gods of the Moabites, they can deliver that happiness and they deliver it through me worshiping them through this sex act. 
we all hope for satisfaction, contentment, and joy. Here's the question for you and the question that the Bible's answering about the Israelites. What do you hope in to deliver joy, satisfaction, and contentment? I want you to take some time, whether you already know that, right now on the spot, whether you know it. If you don't, I want you to take some time to do some heart searching today. What do you hope in? What do you hope will deliver that satisfaction, joy, happiness? You see, what do you believe then will deliver that? That's where you are worshiping. The world is screaming at you from every direction, telling you what will deliver happiness, contentment, joy. And whatever you believe will deliver that is what you hope in. So if you're not a believer this morning, let me say to you, you already hope in something. Believers, we hope in something. We confess together that we believe Christ will do that. The world looks at us and says, you're foolish. Christ cannot do that. And we say, a man who died and rose again from the dead can promise me that same resurrection. If he can overcome death, hell, and the grave, and he promises that I can, I trust him. And here's my question. What are you functionally trusting? If you're not a believer today, I want to ask you, what do you trust to deliver you hope? And, or what do you trust to deliver you happiness and joy and contentment? Christ says, I'll deliver it. Trust in me. I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you joy. I'll give you happiness. But whatever it is that you hope in to deliver that is what you worship. And while it may not be a little statue sitting on your mantle at home that you bow down to, or it may not be the way that the Israelites were worshiping this Baal uh, here in the text before us, there is something that you are holding up to say, this is going to deliver what I know. It's, it's not a wooden statue. It's not something like that, but it could be. We don't, you say, we don't, none of us have those. There are some people I know that carry around a rabbit's foot in their, in their pocket and thinking, well, this is going to bring me luck. It's going to make me happy. It's going to bring me good things. Some of you have other superstitions. But more of us this morning, if we're honest, we turn to people in relationships. Some of you think, if I could just be in that relationship, or if I could just have that in my relationship, if I could just know that person, then I would be happy. Some of you look for power and position. If I could just get that job or if I could just have this control, then my life would be complete. I would have satisfaction. Some of you, it is in possessions. And you're thinking, man, if I could just have those things, our world is really is saturated with this as a God. If I could just have this and this and that, if I could just get one more thing and have the latest thing, then I'd be satisfied and you trust in things to do that. Some people believe that pleasure will do it. So they look to things like drugs or alcohol or sex or even sleep. It's not a bad thing, but we trust it to bring us satisfaction. The Bible calls these false gods. For some of you, you're involved in worship of these false gods right now. Some of you as unbelievers are going after these things and you think they'll deliver and the Bible says no, they end in destruction. Some of you are believers today and yet you've been drawn back away just like the Israelites. And you're going after them. You say this morning, how do I know, Pastor? How do I know what's drawing me away? Let me ask you a couple questions. What are you thinking about right now during this sermon? Could be a key to what really you're hoping in. What dominates your thoughts when you're 
all alone? Where do you spend inordinate amounts of time? Where do you spend a lot of your money? I'll reveal to you what you really think is going to bring happiness to you. Look at your budget. Look at your calendar. Look at your thought life. And that will reveal what do you really believe will bring you happiness. You see, we don't typically make our idols as little wooden statues. Oh, but we still carry them around with us all the time. Nor do we let our idols sound as bad as they really are. So let's move on in the text. Down in the last part of this section, the Bible says that God says, kill them, cut it off, kill it. I want to say to you again, God takes sin seriously. And whatever it is that you've identified that would stand in the way of God, whether it is something evil like worshiping another God like Baal or sexual immorality or uh, uh, drugs that you're addicted to, there are, there are wicked things that come after you, but there are good things that come after you as well. Right? So just a short illustration. Got, a, got an email from a good friend this morning about uh, a day that's coming up that I can go buy a dozen Krispy Kremes and get a dozen free. Amen? So when do I know that that might be an idol of eating? So you could answer that in your head. I'll answer that in my... There's not like, okay, once you go beyond two, Stephen, it's, it's a God to you. All right, so we all agree that if I ate two dozen, you would say, okay, that's your God. I mean, you know you're addicted to that. So maybe somewhere between one and 24... I've eaten too many. Not a bad thing. God has given us food as a gift. There comes a time when it controls my thinking. If I put it on my calendar and think about going to Krispy Kreme every day between now and then, and I start counting the pennies out of the seats in my car just so that I can buy that one dozen to get another dozen free, you might say, Stephen, you've got a problem. There's something going on in your heart. And while Krispy Kreme is not a bad thing, If it's dominating your thinking and you spend your last pennies on something like that just so you can overindulge in sugar and fried wheat, then you might have an issue. What does the Bible say? Cut it off. Kill it. Kill it in you. Jesus says it this way, church. If your eye causes you to stumble, then pluck it out. Because it would be better for you to enter into life without one eye than to be eternally damned because you followed after a false god. Jesus says if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off because it'd be better for you to enter into life, into eternal life, without one hand than to spend eternity separated from God. Church, listen to me. Look at me. I don't know that you and I get the radical nature of what Jesus is saying. We listen to that and we move on from it. Let me give you a word. I know I've said it before, but I want you to think about it. Radical amputation. I don't think there's anybody in here that would say that's not radical. It's not my word. Don't go out and say the preacher told me to cut my hand off. Jesus said, cut your hand off. It's going to cause you to go to hell because you'd rather go to hell without a hand or rather go to heaven without a hand than to spend eternity separated from God what is it that's drawing you away from living for your creator and for Jesus 
Cut it off. Get rid of it. Kill it. Radical amputation. Now, beginning verse 6, let's look at what one man does who is radically committed to God's holiness. Moses and the congregation are standing in the tent of meeting. They're standing there weeping over the deaths that are occurring. The Bible calls this in verse 9 a plague that has come upon the people and actually is going to tell us there are 24,000 of them that die. Moses and the congregation are standing in front of the place where they meet with God and they're weeping. And here comes one man named Zimri. He's bringing a lady who is a Midianite lady called Cosby to his tent in front of the weeping congregation. And it's very obvious he's bringing her, according to the text, to his family. And they're getting ready to enter into this sexual immorality in worship of this false god. Could I just stop for a moment there and say, once you have been taken in by sin and idolatry, you will justify it in just about any way. And you'll be proud and brazen enough to walk in front of those who are crying over their dead family members and enter into your same sin. How many of you today could be right there? That in front of us you would say, no, this is my sin, I'm just human, but I'm going to keep doing it, Pastor. You preach about it as much as you want, but this is mine. And I would say to you, It's better for you to cut off your hand and enter into life than to enter into hell with both hands. God is serious about your sin, church. Now, I think it's time for the church to become serious about our sin. Phinehas, who is the grandson of Aaron, the son of Eleazar, takes a spear and he follows Zimri into his tent. The Bible gives a graphic picture here where he stabs the spear through the back of Zimri and through the stomach of Cosby, thus getting two for the price of one in the name of the holiness of our God. Would that God would give us some Phinehas's in this room. Not asking you to go after everybody else beside you. I'm asking you to be this zealous for the worship of God in your heart, in your life. And then we'll be concerned about it with each other. Notice the zeal of Phinehas is praised. In verse 11, Phinehas, this is the Lord speaking, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. Let me ask you this, church. When's the last time that you were jealous for God's name to be praised and honored in your own thought life? When's the last time that you were jealous for God's name to be honored and praised in your speech to others? In the way you spend your money, in the way you handle business, in the way you speak to your spouse, in the way you speak to your kids, in the way you discipline them. When's the last time that you have been jealous and God would say, man, you, are, you have a, a, a fullness of zeal for me and that you're concerned about God and His name. Like Jesus, verse 12 says, Phinehas made atonement and he turns away the wrath of God. Jesus did it by His own blood 
for you, for me. And in this setting, 24,000 died. Let me come to the end and give you some application. So, this is the end of of the first generation. Go to the big story for a minute. You remember they came, God told them, I'm taking you in the promised land. They rebelled against God and God said... Every male that he counted in chapters 1 through 3 will die before they go into the promised land with the exception of two. You know the two, but turn over to chapter 26, verse 63 with me. The 24,000 that died in chapter 25 are the last of that first generation. They're all dead now, every one of them with the exception of two. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar. God gave Eleazar this priesthood, and so Moses and Eleazar listed them, who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai, for the Lord had said of them, They shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. What sad commentary on faithlessness. Before we get to the end of the Pentateuch, Moses too will die and not go into the promised land because God promised that of him. Only two. God, give us some people that are zealous in this generation for your glory. Let me give you three applications and I close. Number one, reflect on the holiness of our great God. Reflect on the holiness of our great God. I want you to think about the idea that our God cannot, He is too good to let his name be profaned at all. Secondly, I want you to rehearse the gospel to yourself. Rehearse the gospel to yourself. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. As you and I think about Phinehas defending the jealous holiness of our God, Jesus went to the cross To take the plague of God that would have been sure death for every one of us, He took it on His shoulders. So here's the good news. You don't have to be one of the 24,000. One of the first generation. You can be the generation of Christ. Come to Him. Trust in Jesus and live. Because He thwarted the wrath of a holy God and He gives you His holiness. He says, here's how you get it. Trust, trust me that I can do it. And repent of your way. Stop trusting and hoping and all those other things and start trusting me. Come to me and I'll give you eternal life. Church, rehearse the gospel. Remind yourself there's no kind. If you're struggling with some sin today, you have this idol that you're bringing to God again. Know this. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You come and you confess and God says through His Son, He will put that sin under the blood of Christ. He will take your sin and He will give you His righteousness. There's no condemnation for you. 
Number three, respond in faith and obedience. As you reflect and rehearse the gospel, respond in faith and obedience. Trust Him. The God who created everything that is says to you, I will take your sin and I will exchange it for my righteousness. Trust Him. Believe Him. And then this God who would do that, obey Him. Be zealous like Phinehas for the holiness of our God. Be zealous for His holiness.